Hi everybody, I'm Oliver Roth, a Broadway producer at O. Henry Productions. You're listening to The O. Henry Report, the podcast by Broadway World, which gives you a one-of-a-kind look inside the business of Broadway. In the report, we pull back the curtain on the biggest stories, issues, and trends in the industry. Last episode, I shared reporting from Michael Riedel of the New York Post regarding new controversies with Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. In case you missed it, Riedel reports that a group of investors in the production has requested an audit of the production's records. The request was brought on by investors' curiosity of how the show, which grossed around $1 million a week for a little under a year, returned only about 15% of their investment. At first, I didn't bat an eye at these reported numbers. I knew the running costs of the show were very high, and the various instances of producerial decisions that resulted in bad press indicated to me that the producers of the show, Howard and Janet Kagan, could have easily made some costly missteps. So, the fact that the production didn't offer stellar returns wasn't so surprising. Upsetting? Yes. But illegal or unexpected? No. Well, this week I was at breakfast with a colleague when the Great Comet article came up again, and this time I took a moment to really think about it and realized that while the loss wasn't all that surprising, the 15% figure reported was astronomically low. I whipped out my phone calculator to do the basic math that these investors might have done before they decided that it was worth an audit. Now I'm going to take you through my process step by step, because although this is an extreme case, You can use this method to analyze the financials of any show. My first stop was to the grosses. The Riedel article claimed that the show grossed about a million dollars each week, but the exact gross box office figures are, in fact, publicly available, so why not use those? On Broadway World, you can look up a particular production and see all of its reported grosses. I took an average of all the grosses reported from Comet week to week, and according to that calculation, the investors' claims are correct. The show averaged $1.088 million a week. While I was on Broadway World, I also noted that the show ran for 46 weeks, something we'll need to know a little bit later. The Post also reported that the show cost $14 million, and that checks out with the documents that were filed by the production with the SEC back in January. The maximum they sought out to raise was exactly $14 million, with a minimum of $12 million. The last number I needed was the show's running costs. Usually this is something that I'd have to estimate. It's the one part of this equation that isn't public knowledge. That said, in this case, given the circumstances, I was actually reached out to and told from an investor in the show that the weekly running cost was about $850,000 a week. So we now have everything that we need to get a rough estimate of what their percent recoupment should have been by the time they closed based on the numbers that they were working with. To recap, those are the average weekly gross, the number of weeks played, the total capitalization, and the average weekly running costs. So first we'll calculate their approximate weekly operating profit. That's the average box office gross of 1.088 million that we got from Broadway World, minus the approximate weekly running costs of 850,000. And that equals $238,000 of operating profits per week. That's the money the show supposedly would have made each week to pay back its investors. That's after paying expenses like actors, stagehands, rent, authors, royalties, etc. So again, that number is $238,000 per week. Now we're going to multiply that by the 46 weeks that the show played, and you get a total estimated revenue over the course of the run of $10,948,000. Divide that by the $14 million capitalization, and you find that, according to these estimates, the investors should or could have seen about 78.2% return. So I was sitting in this diner with my calculator out and my colleague across from me, and I was totally baffled. Now, I get why these investors were so surprised. Let's talk dollars for a second. 15% of $14 million is $2,100,000, which is what these investors say the show returned. There are a little less than $9 million between that and 
my estimate for what the return could have been. That's $9 million that these investors expected to be back in their wallets. So what are some of the bumps and obstacles that prevent a production from meeting its targeted earnings? And how do the agreements with the investors allow an account for these kinds of decisions to be made? How unusual is the Great Comet situation? And if it is grossly unusual, what happened and how? That's what we'll look at on this episode of The O'Henry Report. We'll talk to Daniel Cuny, a general manager who works on Broadway and off-Broadway, about how a show's budget gets made and why a show may deviate from the intended financial plan. Then, Carrie Castleman, a theater attorney at Paul Weiss, will explain the legal issues behind a producer's decision to make these changes. But first, here's what else you need to know this week on The Great White Way. The Cher musical has announced that it will open next fall at the Neil Simon Theater after a run in Chicago over the summer. Cher marks the fourth original musical to announce for the 2018-2019 season. To put that into perspective, there are only six new musicals that have been announced so far for this season, and that's including Prince of Broadway, which is more of a musical review than an original musical. While we're talking this season... Home for the Holidays, a special holiday concert, was recently announced to play a limited engagement from November 17th to December 30th at the August Wilson Theater. What's interesting about this announcement is that the marquee of Mean Girls is already up at the August Wilson, where it will open this spring. It'll be interesting to see whether that will come down before Home for the Holidays opens. Ticketmaster verified fan registration opened up this week for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. According to Ticketmaster, the demand for the show was unprecedented and was a drag on their online servers. Ticketmaster has also filed a lawsuit against a major scalper, Prestige Entertainment, for damages of at least $10 million. Ticketmaster claims that Prestige used illegal technology to purchase large quantities of tickets to Hamilton. Daniel Cuny, who you'll hear from later as a guest on this episode, is the founder of the Broadway Striders, a run club for theater professionals looking to make new friends in the industry, run, and eat brunch. If you work in the business and are interested in joining the Striders for an upcoming run in Central Park, you can get more information and sign up at broadwaystriders.org. On Monday, October 30th, Broadway stars including Dear Evan Hansen's Crystal and Lloyd and Laura Dreyfus and a Bronx Tales' Nick Cordero will gather at the Highline Ballroom in Manhattan for a night of unforgettable performances benefiting the victims of Hurricane Harvey. Visit facebook.com slash Houston for tickets or to donate. Proceeds will go to the Houston Food Bank. Now let's talk money. Hello Dolly broke the Schubert Organization's all-time record for top gross in one week for the fifth time last week, bringing in $2.347 million. But Bruce Springsteen really won Broadway last week, bringing in a record-breaking $2.33 million in just five performances, with an average ticket price of $497. Finally on grosses, the best musical nominee, Come From Away, has announced recoupment, and so has our little Sweeney Todd, which runs off-Broadway at the Barrow Street Theater. The off-Broadway revival of When Pigs Fly first delayed previews and then, shortly after, announced that it would be canceled as the producers were unable to raise enough money to capitalize the show. I'm sure anyone who already invested in that production won't be too happy, which brings us back to that Riedel article. So I'm about to bring in Daniel Cuny, a Broadway and off-Broadway general manager currently working on Puffs at New World Stages, and he has previously worked on Rock of Ages, A Night with Janis Joplin, Fella, The 39 Steps, and many more. You can find him on Twitter at Daniel Cuny, that's K-U-N-E-Y, or email him at daniel at kgmtheatrical.com. I should note a few things before I continue. First, I'm a huge fan of The Great Comet and its team, cast, creative, and administrative. Nothing said in this episode should be construed as criticism of the production or of the individuals involved. Second, I could be wrong, and the audit is the only way to be sure, but my guess is that there was no foul play about the producing, though probably some major missteps. What we'll look at is how producers can make legal changes to budgeting on the fly, as is needed to keep their production afloat. Third, I don't want this example to discourage people from investing in theater. I think investing in theater is a vital part of a balanced portfolio for those who qualify. 
It's something that I talk about a lot on my website and blog and that I speak about at conferences all of the time. I got into this business because I believe in the commercial power of theater and a lot of what I do as a producer is find the right projects to invest in. However, it's really important when you are investing in theater that you know what you're talking about. And that's why I spend so much time running the numbers before we decide to invest in a show. So, you just need to know what you're getting into, take the time to review the offering papers, and be with a producer who you trust to treat your investment appropriately. A vast majority of us do, and that includes a ton of my colleagues on the producing team of The Great Comet. With that said, let's dig in. If the show returned only 15%, one or more of the numbers that I used in my estimates with my friend at the diner had to have been wrong. So let's start with the $850,000 weekly operating costs, since I based that off of what one of these investors told me, and wasn't able to actually confirm it from a third party. If we go with the numbers reported by the Post, that the investors were paid only 15% of their $14 million capitalization, we can use the same calculations we did together at the beginning of the episode to find out what the running costs were. I did those calculations and found that to make the numbers work, the running costs must have been a little over a million dollars a week. So the investors were assuming the costs were $850,000 a week, but in order to explain the return, there would have to have been $150,000 per week more being spent. Daniel, in what situation would the operating cost of a show be different than the figure used in crafting the original budget? Well, there's certainly lots of reasons why that might happen. Um, you know, there's the very basic ones that, you know, if the show is doing well, sometimes you actually have to spend a little bit more money to go through award season. Um, you know, performing on the Tony Awards, rehearsing for the Tonys is not inexpensive. So sometimes a show that's doing well has to start setting aside a little extra money each week to get ready for award season. But really, it could be any number of things. I mean, obviously, when we're doing a budget, we try to make it as accurate as possible. But you know, you're sitting around in a room and the creative team makes a case that they absolutely must have 30 more moving lights each week. And again, I'm making that up, but you know, and if they really make a solid case and the producer takes it all in and says, you know what, you know, I agree, like this show is just going to run better if we spend more money on this one line than we initially anticipated. So it's definitely not uncommon that through the process of putting the show on, everyone comes to the same opinion that more money would, would better serve the show in a particular area. Since these great common investors were caught off guard with how much the show returned, they clearly had an understanding of how the finances would play out that was different than how the finances ended up. Carrie Castleman is a theater attorney at Paul Weiss, and just to note, neither Carrie nor the firm had any involvement in The Great Comet, nor did they represent any of the producers or investors. So what she's going to talk to us about comes from her experiences as an attorney working on theater, but without any knowledge to the particulars of this case. So Carrie, let's take a step back and talk about what information these investors were working with that resulted in them being so surprised. For those listening who haven't produced or invested in a show before, what does the producer's agreement with the investor usually look like? Yeah, so speaking very broadly, each each Broadway production is usually produced through a standalone vehicle, typically a limited liability company, an LLC, or a limited partnership, an LP. And so each Broadway show has its own LLC or LP that will be the repository for all of the financing for the production and will also then enter into all of the contracts that are related to the show, including the author agreement, the theater owner agreement, et cetera, where all of those rights will eventually be assigned from the individual producer into that production entity. When the, the producer, who is typically the managing member or the general partner of the entity, begins to raise capital for the production, they will do it through this LLC or LP and in order to provide the investors with some understanding of what the terms are of the investment, um, they will typically prepare a limited liability company agreement or a limited partnership agreement. And what that agreement is, is basically the contract between the investor and the producer, where the producer outlines for the investor what the parameters of this business enterprise are and what the investor's rights will be, entitlements to proceeds, and, you know, covers 
business matters such as, you know, the audit right, but also provide some information about the particular production that um, is at hand. Most producers, with the exception of, you know, some of the corporate producers, uh, a producer may have multiple projects being run out of their office, but each of those titles, each of those Broadway productions will have its own entity. They don't mingle the funds together. So when you're an investor, you are investing in a specific entity whose purpose is to produce and finance a specific Broadway production. So Daniel, it's your job as the GM of the production to draft up the financial, uh, the budgets that are included in an operating agreement. Can you tell us what those look like? What budgetary information the investor is given at the time of their investment or in the operating agreement? Yes. Yeah, so typically investors get three different budgets. They get a production budget, which shows all of the costs that the show is going to incur until the show enters performances. So the cost to build the set, the cost to rehearse the show, the cost to build the costumes, that's all going to go in your production budget. Then you have your weekly budget, which does exactly what it sounds like. It shows you what the show is going to cost to run on a weekly basis. The third document that I, as a general manager, prepare is what we call a recruitment chart. And we look at those two things combined, plus an additional, um, plus what we expect in revenue on a weekly basis. So we look at um, different levels of recruitment based on capacity. So, you know, did we sell out this week or we have 90% capacity, 80% capacity? And that's what we call the recruitment chart. Let's talk a little bit more about these budgets for a second. And I know this could be a topic for an entire other episode, but just want to explore it so that we fully understand uh, in the context of what we're talking about here. When a producer reaches out to you to ask for a budget, do they say, Daniel, here's what I want to do. How much will it cost? Or more often, is it, here's the capital that I have available to me. What can I do with it? That's a great question. You know, it goes both ways. Sometimes a producer will come to us and say, I've got this show and I know what I want it to be. You know, the example I like to use is someone might come to us and say, I want to do Titanic on Broadway and I want it to be massive. I want, you know, uh, 50 gallons of water. I want it. I want the Titanic to actually sink every night into a giant pool. I want a cast of 30. I want this to be the biggest show on Broadway. But they don't know what that costs. So we then take that vision and we create a budget around that vision. The other thing that happens quite often, sort of as you, as you just said, is a producer will come to us and say, all right, I want to do Titanic. I have $10 million to spend. What kind of vision can I reasonably expect to achieve with $10 million? So we can go in either direction. How long before a production starts does that conversation usually take place? Oh, golly. There's really no one right answer to that. Um, you know, shows take a long time to develop. So it's very possible that when a producer comes to me, I'll do an initial budget that does change substantially as the process goes on. So it's not impossible that the budget is going to change. The question for the producer is, as the budget changes, and you're sharing that with your potential investors, just making sure they're within the legally, the required minimum or maximum investment that they're allowed to raise according to the operating agreement. And that brings us back to where we started this conversation, which is that changes can take place. You gave the example earlier of being at a production meeting and realizing that you need 30 more moving lights than what you thought, which is a pretty monumental shift to the absolute base running cost per week. But it could also be something that just causes a shift one week to another. Like when we last spoke on the O'Henry report, we were talking about adding or removing a star as a cast member, and that would obviously change the budget too. But however it happens, whatever the changes in the rehearsals that occur or whatever bumps or obstacles or opportunities that come up as the show is running, these changes offset your actual weekly operating costs from those that were prepared in the budgets at the time that they were given to the investor. Yeah, so you actually just gave a great example right there. If you have a star in the show and you feel like the show can survive without the star, 
that star is probably making a fairly substantial salary each week. So if you go from a mega star to a non-mega star, that's going to decrease the weekly operating expenses. So the thing for investors to understand is that what they're looking at on the weekly budget is a really good idea of where the show is going to be under the initially planned circumstances. But as those circumstances change, that can very easily change. So, Kerry, the investor signs on and writes a check after reviewing financial documents that gives them these initially planned circumstances. And we just heard from Daniel Cuny that running a production requires that the producer is able to make on-the-fly changes to the plan to spend more some weeks or less other weeks. How do these offering papers that are given to the investors and signed off on at the time of their investment account for the necessity to make these changes? Yeah, it's really interlaced throughout the document. As a starting premise, the general partner, the managing member, typically the that the agreement specifies that they really have the sole discretion to operate the business of the company, and they have the discretion to enter into any agreements that they deem reasonable and necessary uh, in connection with the production of the show. And it's also specified that the investor has no approval right or vote in the management of the company. So as a, as a broad matter, it should be clear to the investor that their, you know, their role here is a passive role. But even further, typically when the, for example, creative deals are explained, there's usually a caveat that says, you know, while it is anticipated that the company will enter into an agreement on these terms, there can be no assurance that the actual terms will be, you know, the same as what's described or as favorable as what's described. And you'll see that caveat reiterated throughout the agreement anytime specific terms are mentioned. Um, and then with respect to the recruitment projections, you know, you'll typically see uh, a qualification that says that, you know, even though, um, you know, that there can be no real assurance that the production will sell tickets at any particular capacity, recruitment projections tend to assume that uh, a full full price is paid for all tickets. So there's a further caveat that you can't make that assumption. Uh, and really throughout the document, there is a number, there are a number of places in which it's stated that the terms that are described in the document may not actually end up being the actual operative business terms for the for the particular production, and that furthermore, you know, the general manager or the um, managing member or the general partner has discretion to enter into an agreement on different terms than what is being described. We now have some idea of what might have gone on in the case of the Great Comet to cause some alarm in this group of investors. The fact that the general partner can adjust the running costs of the show means that it's possible, and maybe even probable, that the show was costing more than what the investors were expecting the show would cost, which was around $850,000 per week. And that's the number that we were using at the top of the show to get that $9 million error. Daniel, we've learned some stuff from you and from Kerry that indicates that the calculations that I had done, the really rough calculations that I thought would illustrate the expectations that these investors might have had about a best-case scenario – uh, were probably off. Uh, they, were, they were probably assuming that the operating costs were far lower. You're a GM, and so this is sort of your area of expertise. And I know that you haven't personally seen the Great Comet documents, but I wanted to know if you would take us through the calculations as you see them so that we can figure out how odd they really are. Yeah, sure. So look, I mean, obviously, you know, I can't comment specifically about Natasha, nor have I seen their numbers, as you just said. But if just some quick back of the napkin calculations based on what we know publicly about the show, it doesn't seem like there's anything to be surprised about. I mean, you can go on to Broadway World and see that in the 46 weeks the show ran, it made about $50 million in pure revenue. Um, now about 10% of that comes right off that the show never sees. So the, what we would call in the business, the net gross, the show made $45 million in, in, in net over 46 weeks. Hey, Daniel, sorry. Uh, just hold on for one second because you're already letting us in on an important piece of information that I left out at the start. Where does the 10% you just took out go? 
That's a good question. It goes to credit card commissions. It goes to pension and welfare funds. It's it's a bit of a longer answer, but essentially what happens is right off the top, there's a bunch of money from each ticket sale that never flows through to the show. It's about nine and a half, ten percent 10%. So what's reported publicly is what we call the gross gross. But what the show actually sees is the net gross. And that's the number that's reported on the profit and loss statements. Okay, so back to those calculations. You were saying we were at $45 net gross. Yeah, so the show probably made in 46 weeks of running about $45 million in revenue. Well, if the show ran at about $900,000 a week, including all royalties, which wouldn't surprise me given a show at that level, then they would have made about... $3.6 million in profit over the course of the 46 weeks. So to say that the show recouped $3.6 million or, you know, roughly 15%, whatever Riedel is saying, doesn't surprise me. Like, just like quick back of the napkin numbers, everything seems to be on the up and up. Things are starting to look much better than the way that they originally looked based on my calculations. And we've learned two things. First, that the weekly operating costs can fluctuate. And second, that the million dollar a week gross that these investors were working with didn't take into account the 10% in fees that the production never receives. That said, Daniel's $3.6 million estimate is still $1.5 million over the $2.1 million reported by the Post. Now, $1.5 million is a much more reasonable margin of error. But If we had the operating costs and the grosses wrong, what else might we have been missing? Kerry, we've talked about budgetary decisions that a producer can make without informing the investors. Are there any aspects of the budgets stipulated in the offering papers that investors can be pretty confident in? Anything that can't be changed at the discretion of the general partner? So there, there are some restrictions, but they live, you know, relative in, in a relatively generic sense. I mean, the first, the first and most important protection that most investors have that a, um, production that they are investing in is going to be consistent with their expectations is what the minimum and the maximum capital is. And so, you know, most productions, most offering documents set a minimum and a maximum. It's usually, you know, for a full-size musical within a couple million dollars of the minimum and the maximum. There's not a huge spread. And the idea is that the investor is supposed to get some comfort that the producer is not going to end up producing a show that is significantly smaller than what the investor has expected, because that might have been a material element in in the investor deciding how much money they wanted to put in the show or that certain elements that they expected would be there, whether it's a star or, you know, some fantastic set pieces, et cetera, actually aren't there. Um, and also the maximum gives the investor some protection that, you know, the producer is not going to end up spending, you know, $40 million on the, on, on the production and, and the investment and the recruitment prospects suddenly look much different than what the investor might have intended. So the minimum maximum is actually, um, you know, an important sort of, I guess, cap on, on ultimately what the, overall production expenses should be. Now, that's not to say that there aren't production overruns and that productions don't cost more than the maximum capital. For the most part, offering documents will say that if the managing member wants to admit or raise money in excess of the maximum and wants to do it at the expense of the investors in anything other than sort of cutting in a new person into the pro rata capital distributions, they would need the approval of the investors. That's that's the one area in which the producer may have to go back to the investors is to basically admit more money in as investors in, you know, cash distributions that the investors would be entitled to outside of pro rata return of capital. Um, but that's pretty rare. There are other ways that, you know, a producer might finance production overruns that wouldn't necessarily require the approval of the investing members. So remember that SEC filing that said the production would cap its investment at $14 million? What Kerry is suggesting is that there are ways to increase the production funds without increasing the capitalization. That could explain the last piece of this puzzle. Daniel, how can you bring more money into a production if you've already hit your max capitalization and you find that that's just not enough to get the production going? Sure. So once 
a show closes out its capitalization, you can't actually, we're not like a tech startup. So we don't raise, you know, series B, series C, series D rounds. We have one round of capitalization. If at some point, either before the show opens or during previews or, you know, the show's running, but it's, it's running out of money, the show needs more capital. Really, the only way we typically do it in theater is through a priority loan. And what that means is you can either go back to your investors or the lead producers will put in uh, additional capital that gets paid back in first position. And by first position, you mean that the loan is paid back in full before payments can be made back to the investors. Yeah, because in theory, that money is coming in at a pretty precarious time. So it's the riskiest money coming in. And part of the reason it goes in is because everyone feels that it's a bet, that if the show can run, you know, four more months, six more months, that you'll have a greater chance of building an audience, getting the word out there, selling more tickets, increasing revenue, and then ultimately returning money to your investors. And the reason a producer would have this power is that in many cases, it would be the best and maybe even only way to keep a show running when cash is low. Yeah, so you've depleted your capital, you've depleted any sort of emergency funds that you've set aside. This is the only shot that you now have to keep the show running. Kerry, this brings us back to the operating agreement. What in the operating agreement allows for a producer to take out these priority loans? Right. There is some variation in how operating agreements address the question of loans, but you know, you'll see some variation on, you know, the producer either having the discretion to complete the capitalization through use of a loan that the producer either his or herself makes or causes to be made or to cover a production overrun in excess of the capitalization um, by virtue of a loan. And um, what that does is it typically subordinates the investors to only be getting their return of capital after the loan has been repaid. And, you know, many of the offering documents that I've looked at do actually expressly say at one point that, you know, the company could incur loans, which would delay the repayment of capital contributions to the investors. So it is part of the disclosure package, but, you know, it, it can, it can mean that, you know, in addition to the running expenses of the production, which are already ahead of the investors in terms of where the cash flows on a week-to-week basis, the loan could then sit, could also sit in front of the investors. It's pretty clear at this point how the 15% return could have come about. And while these investors might have been surprised at the difference between their expected returns and their actual returns, the items we've discussed increases to the weekly operating expense and priority loans show how the distinction could have come out of often used financial strategies in the industry. And what we know is that these changes are up to the general partner's discretion. I want to unpack that concept of discretion and figure out what exactly it means and whether there are any limits to it. So one thing I do want to say on the priority loan, and this kind of goes to the question of what is really the the general partner or managing member's discretion, you know, even though a decision may be initially unfavorable to an investor, there are ways in which the sort of business rationale, the business judgment, um, you know, is in some ways potentially reasonable. And so if you look at the priority loan, it might sound very unfavorable. Uh, so there's now, you know, in, in a, a business where it's hard enough to recoup as it is, you now have this sort of additional layer of money that has to be repaid before the investors start to see the return of capital. You know, if the priority loan is being used to actually top up the capitalization, right? So rather than an, a, an additional production over, uh, overrun is actually just being used to bring it up to the minimum, it actually means that instead, uh, you know, once, once the loan is repaid and the capital is beginning to be distributed out to the investors, the investor will have a larger pro rata share than they would have if that money had not come in through the loan, um, but had come in through another equity investment. Because remember, the percentage of the distributions that an investor gets is based on the percentage of capital that they contributed. So you could theoretically make the argument that, you know, assuming that you were reasonably of the belief that the the proceeds from the production would be sufficient to pay the priority loan, that the investors would just be paid back that much faster once there was capital available to distribute to them. 
And over the long run, and if you look at sort of the idea that a musical should reasonably try to be able to recoup within one year of running, you could you could make the argument that at the end of that year or the end of that 18 months, the investors are potentially in the same place that they would have been otherwise. So there's there's a there's a fair amount of you know business judgment that is accorded to the managing member and the general partner. And even if the decision may not necessarily be what the investors would have done, um, there's enough rationale to it, and it was you know reasonably necessary or consistent with business practices that you know it wouldn't be called into question. Is there a bright line for when this discretionary spending becomes so extraordinary that there would be legal recourse for the investors against the GP? You know, no operating agreement is a license to commit fraud. And, you know, again, not saying that that has happened with The Great Comet or any other production in particular. I mean, the one where we all know there was fraud, obviously, is Rebecca. And in fact, you know, there was a criminal indictment in that case um, of the of the individual who had been engaged to basically raise money for the production. Um, to step back for a second, one of the elements of any claim for fraud, which is basically that you were misled into uh, making a particular investment decision that, you know, the information that you relied on um, was significant to your decision uh, and that you actually incur damages in the case of civil fraud. There's there's a knowledge element there that um, you, you have to be able to prove that the producer really knew that the information that was being presented wasn't just optimistic, but but was in fact wrong. So, you know, when you make the statement that the, you know, the advance payable to the authors is expected to be $50,000 upon capitalization of the production. Now, if you if you are in the middle of negotiating the author agreement, and you have a statement in your LLC agreement that says the agreement with the authors has not yet been executed and there's no guarantee that these will be the actual terms. And at the end of the day, the producer agrees to pay a $100,000 advance. That fact pattern to me doesn't really smell nefarious. You, you really need to be able to show that at the time certain disclosures were, ma- were made, the producer was in possession of information that was, you know, actually to the contrary. And the producer had no reasonable belief that the information that they were presenting to investors as material information towards the investor's decision would actually turn out to be true. And that's, that's a relatively high hurdle to clear. Um, you know, and, and uh, as I said, optimism does not equal fraud. So the fact that, you know, you believe based on a Broadway budget that's been prepared by a general manager with experience based on capitalization of minimum and maximum that's sort of consistent with what else there is in the industry. Um, the fact that you reasonably believe that your show is going to potentially sell tickets in accordance with your recruitment schedule. Um, if that turns out to just be absolutely wrong. And no one comes to see the show or the show turns out to be much more expensive to run for reasons that, you know, uh, are related to who's in the cast, what the set turns out to be, the theater that you're in, um, you know, what what if, if it's a musical, what the, the music materials and the music costs are. There's all number of ways in which the, the running expenses really can be much more than that. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's going to be very hard for an investor to claim that that actually arises to um, a fraudulent misstatement. For anyone who isn't aware of the details of the Rebecca case that Carrie referenced, I wanted to clarify that the producing team was neither charged nor convicted of fraud. Mark Houghton, an investment bundler for the show, was the only individual indicted. So the only time in which the investor would have legal recourse would be if there were intentional fabrication. So if, for example, the GP circulates one version of the budget to investors, a version that's totally unrealistic, but makes the financials look really good, and then they have a separate budget that, uh, they know of, they've, they've, they've had created, and it's in their back pocket, and they're gonna whip it out once production starts, but until then, they're going to pretend that the show is doable with very different numbers. That's, that's probably the most uh, likely. Uh, you know, the most, most operating agreements also have the managing member make certain representations. And so things like the managing member believes that the minimum and maximum capital is sufficient to produce the production, uh, that, you know, the managing member has only entered into contracts that are in its discretion. And again, you know, we are living in a world where the, the business discretion to the managing member is, is really complete. 
um, you know, that it's only entered into contracts that are reasonable and necessary. So you, you could bring something sort of styled as a breach of contract claim based on, you know, the allegation that these representations and warranties were untrue at the time that they were made. Um, you know, that's not as harsh as something like, like a fraud claim. Um, but again, I think it's a high hurdle for an investor to be able to prove because, there is so much, so much of even those representations is sort of qualified by reasonableness and discretion. Right. I mean, aside from the case of a, of criminal charges against a managing member, when we're talking about um, investors taking a civil suit, I would imagine things become even more complicated, even harder uh, to prove because in a speculative industry like Broadway – it's pretty hard to prove that the damages or the losses that the investor incurred were a direct result of the GP's actions as opposed to any other reason why a Broadway show may lose money. And as we all know, there are many of those. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's, you know, you'd have to show that, I mean, generally speaking, that the misstatements and the information that you relied on were really the cause of your damages. And, um, you know, the difference between a show recouping uh, 50% and a show recouping 65% of its original investment, you know, may be relatively minimal in the grand scheme of how much it would actually cost to bring a lawsuit. Um, and so I think, you know, the question of proving damages, particularly when Broadway is such a speculative business is, is a, is a, a, a real one. Though it's unlikely that the investors in the great comet will find anything actionable against the Kagans. It is an example which demonstrates what the process would be and what powers the investors do have to keep the producer in check. And that's through this audit. So, Daniel, what is an audit and how often do these audits actually happen in the industry? So it's a pretty rare thing to have your own investors request an audit. Um, but what it means is that they're going to come in probably with their own accountant and go through the books and really go through line by line and make sure that what's being reported on the profit and loss statements matches what's in the QuickBooks. And then, you know, depending on how far they want to take it, you know, look through every check that was cut, make sure that matches what goes into the QuickBooks, make sure that the box office statement fully matches. It's really just, you know, what happens is when investors get a profit and loss statement, you know, they actually are not seeing the breakdown of what's in each of those lines. So an audit will allow a, a third-party accountant, accounting firm to come in and really verify that all of those lines tie into the backup. Does everyone who invested in a show have the right to audit? Well, so the audit right is typically, it's a creature of contract. So an investor who has invested directly in the production entity, so who has signed the subscription documents, uh, typically the operating agreement will provide that that investor has a periodic right to audit the book and records of the production entity. Uh, the status of people who invest through other investors, so the practice of laying off may be a little bit different. So I'm really just speaking with respect to those investors who have directly entered into the subscription agreement with the production entity and therefore are bound by the LLC agreement and have the rights that investors have under that agreement. Um, the audit right typically can only be exercised once every so many, you know, months. And typically it's anywhere, you know, once every one, it's usually every one year or 18 months, sometimes every two years. Um, and so it has to be exercised periodically and it typically has a, restricted look back period. So you can usually only look back again between one and three years in the accounting records. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a license to basically, you know, audit the entire history of the production entity. If, if you happen to be affiliated with a long running production. So it's a creature of contract. It is typically given to, you know, anyone who is a, an investor in the production entity by virtue of the LLC agreement. We heard from Daniel that the case of Great Comet where investors are actually going ahead with the audit is a rare circumstance. But I wanted to also ask your take on how rare the situation is and why. Yeah. So just by way of clarification, you know, we, we have not represented the Great Comet or anyone who's invested in the Great Comet. Um, as a general matter, the audit right is 
relatively rarely exercised, and that's because it has to be exercised at the investor's expense. Usually, the LLC agreement specifies that if the investor elects to audit, they have to carry the costs for doing so. And it's it's not it's not a cheap enterprise to audit the books and records. These investors are clearly upset, or at least skeptical, of the way their investments were handled. And we've learned throughout this episode just how much power the GP has to make a decision at their own discretion that would really affect the course of the production. On the one hand, it might be scary to enter into an agreement as an investor, knowing that the finances that you are looking at aren't necessarily the way the finances will play out. But on the other hand, we've gone through so many reasons why these powers that are given to the GP to stray off the planned financial trajectory are actually necessary to protect the investment at the end of the day. So as investors continue to invest in theater, are there any best practices that you can suggest to minimize the risk that they're caught off guard when the books finally get closed? And I'm talking about advice other than that investors should always be aware that the chance that they lose their entire investment is a real one. I think one important element is that whether it's through an attorney or through, you know, having access to the general manager's office, that any investor does get the opportunity to ask questions about the production. And, um, you know, Broadway used to be a very small world. It's still a small world. But as people who may not be as familiar with the business of theater start to invest in, um, you know, theatrical productions, being able to really understand what it is that the operating documents say and ask about how are decisions made. If there's more than one producer, right? How are decisions made between them? Um, if there is a star, you may not get a lot of information about that star's particular deal. Although for the most part, investors are entitled to look at copies of the agreements, um, that the producer enters into, um, you know, subject to certain caveats, but really understanding what the nature of those deals are, I think is helpful. And if it's, if it's someone who really has not invested in Broadway productions before, either investing through or with someone who is experienced, who you are comfortable asking questions about, or, you know, not that this is a pitch for lawyers, but, you know, having a lawyer who can review the documents and give you a point by point outline of, you know, this is how the, this is how the money flows through the entity. Um, this is the discretion that the producer has. You know, these are the expected recoupment uh, figures. And here's how you should understand how that lines up against customary industry expectations about, you know, how long it takes for a musical to recoup, et cetera. Um, you know, I think there's sometimes some pressure to, you know, it's a, it's a supposed to, you know, it's a smaller, it's a smaller community and you don't want to necessarily be look, you know, look like you might be challenging the producer right off, you know, with a series of sort of penetrating questions, but it's, it's worth poking around and kicking the tires. So Daniel, the question that I think we've really been getting at, uh, throughout our conversation and that the great comment article brings up really has to do with the relationship between the investors and the general partner. Right. To what extent does the GP have to actually operate independently from what the investors expect in order to, in the end, do what they think is right to protect the investment and keep the show alive? So what can we do as producers or as investors to allow for these necessary decisions to get made without sitting there after the show closes feeling like something went wrong? Ultimately, I think it is about transparency. Again, we're trying to not only raise money for the show that we're currently doing, but we're trying to create an environment in which these investors would want to invest again. So yes, it is certainly possible that a show planning to go to Broadway assumed that, making all this up, the physical production was going to cost $2 million. And in the design process, the designers and the director made a strong case, let's say it's the Titanic, that we needed to actually have, we need the full type life-size replica of the Titanic on stage. And instead of costing $2 million, that's $5 million. It's possible that a producer can go and raise the additional money for that through a priority loan. But you're right. The question is, do their investors feel like they're making the right shot? And or are they informed of the decision along the way? Are they being brought into the process? You're not going to ask your investors 
everything that comes up during the course of a production. But the more transparency there is, the more that the investors feel like they're being told what's going on, the better environment you're creating for them. Here's where that leaves us with respect to the Great Comet. Investors were told the production would cost $14 million and would run about $850,000 a week. Clearly, things came up along the way to make the show more expensive to produce and more expensive to run, which isn't that hard to believe. Those could have been a few things. They could have increased aspects of physical production. They did have that lawsuit with Ars Nova for failing to provide proper billing. And they were also honored with 12 Tony nominations, so they may have had a pretty hefty sum that they put into a Tony campaign. Whatever it was, they ended up spending something more like $900,000 to a million dollars a week on average to run the show. On top of that, they probably had expenses that couldn't be covered by the $14 million max capitalization, and so they had to take out maybe $1 to $1.5 million in priority loans, which were paid back before investors saw returns. Now Weedle's article doesn't seem so crazy. It makes sense that though the show grossed a million dollars a week, it didn't return much. The truth is that it's all about trust, faith, and good judgment, because these changes are legal, and they're legal for a very good reason. Sometimes you need to divert from the plan in order for the show to go on. No business can run without varying in weekly expenses, and sometimes businesses of any kind need a little bit of help via a loan. The key is that there's transparency and that you work with people who you really trust to make these decisions. I leave it to you to decide your opinions in the case of The Great Comet. And I also remind you that if there were priority loans and increases to the operating expenses, those decisions wouldn't have been made by, or maybe even disclosed to, the co-producers. The only individuals who had the discretion to make those changes, and who can be held accountable for the way the money was managed, are the general partners, Howard and Janet Kagan. Thank you for listening to The O'Henry Report. If you have any questions from previous podcasts or ideas for the next one, tweet me at Oliver Henry Roth. You can find The O'Henry Report on broadwayworld.com, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. Basically, anywhere you like to listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow Broadway World on Facebook and on Twitter at Broadway World for updates. You can find me on Twitter at Oliver Henry Roth, on Facebook at O'Henry Productions, and on the web at www.ohenryproductions.com. From myself and the rest of the O'Henry Report and Broadway World staff, thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.